When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the party, pals. This is Die Hard on a Blank, the podcast where we explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. I'm Phil Gawthorne, and with me is my co-host, Liam Billingham. Yippee-ki-yay, melon farmers. Phil, is it true that John McClane, in the edited version on TV, said melon farmers? Did he say that in the UK? He did not say it in the UK. He said In the, the, the version in the UK, he says, um, yippee-ki-yay, kimosabi. Oh, yippee-ki-yay, kimosabi is not good. Yeah, well, melon farmers, not great. And plus, I think that's actually apocryphal. And uh, although there was an episode of the Goldbergs uh, about that, but I don't think it's actually true. There's no evidence of it. But there is evidence of him saying yippee-ki-yay, Mr. Falcon in an edited version of Die Hard 2. Yippee-ki-yay, Mr. Falcon? Who's Mr. Falcon? I have no idea. That doesn't make any sense. That's bizarre. All right. Well, clearly this is a podcast about uh, censored versions of of the movie Die Hard from 1988. That's what we're doing here. No, no, no. This is a podcast about Die Hard. It's Christmas. Oh, that's right. It's Christmas time. And Phil and I decided that now was the time to launch our very own Die Hard themed podcast. Phil. Yes. You want to tell us about the podcast? Yes, sir. So Die Hard on a Blank is going to explore the influence of Die Hard across action cinema. And there's a myriad of ways that Die Hard, its fingerprints made its way through the genre. Obviously, the most you know the most obvious is the various films that uh, replicated this specific formula, which we'll, we, which we will talk about. But it affected the genre in in a number of different ways. Some of which we we you know might not be uh, as obvious. So really, this is a film that has remained relevant and resonant over thirty years after its release. And we're gonna we're gonna track movie by movie the ways in which its vibrations have reverberated throughout action cinema. And look, we are, I think, in my humble opinion, the right guys to do this podcast. But actually, specifically, you are the right guy. Why are you the guy to do a podcast called Die Hard on a Blank? First of all, everybody loves Die Hard, right? Yeah. The most, in my opinion, the most influential action movie of of the 20th century, potentially of all time. Why I and why I can speak to that from a position of knowledge and experience is because I am a professional action movie screenwriter. I've worked for most of the um, major studios at this point. I used to write for the BBC and I was a playwright, but I always wanted to do commercial action cinema. So I moved out here to to LA. And this is common language in, in the movie business. Die hard on a blank, it's die hard on a such and such, it's die hard in a wheelbarrow, it's die hard on a construction site, it's da 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 da. Die is hard a... on a skyscraper, die hard <laughs> on an Alcatraz. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. sure. So yeah. this is, now most people kind of know that and most people um, understand that. Um, but what we're going to do on the show is get into a real deep dive on why this movie works, why the films that try to follow it succeed or fail. And we're really going to quantify that through a uh, something I, I put together called the, the anatomy of an action movie, where we're going to get really deep and discuss all of the different components and mechanisms that make an action movie work or not. Do you remember the first time you saw Die Hard? 
You know, I can't remember the exact first time because it's almost like it, it feels almost pre-birth. It's just always been in our life. You know, it's hard to remember it because it's just always been there. It's always been with us like a beloved uh, family member. You know, it's just uh, everyone has this sense of um, a kind of a personal connection, I think, to Die Hard. It's it's so nostalgic and it ha it's on every year. So it's it's been in our lives for a long time and I'm no exception to that. I do remember watching it Many times when it was, I, I it was taped, uh, videoed off the off the TV uh, in the UK when I was a kid. Ooh, children of the eighties and nineties, listening to you taping movies off off the, Indeed. Off the TV. Same, same. Indeed, Halcyon days. <laughs> And I, I remember watching it so often that I could remember where the, where the commercial breaks were. And now when I watch the movie, it's kind of almost weird for me that it doesn't cut to commercial at these certain at these certain points because I watched that video so many times. It's me and Star Wars. It's the same thing. Whenever I watch Star Wars, I'm like, why isn't there a commercial break here? That's weird. Yeah, it's kind of just, it, it ingrains itself in our consciousness. And it became something that was a tradition for me on every Christmas Eve, I would watch it. And then it became a tradition with me and my dad. And then uh, we took it a step further and we decided to watch every single Die Hard movie on Christmas Eve over a five-year period in chronological order. So, you know, it, it's certainly something that means more to me than the average bear. And you met my dad. Um, I met your dad. I was going to say, I think you're remembering of let's, hey, dad, let's watch every Die Hard movie for five years in a row is certainly you think. Because he was like, I love Die Hard, but boy, does Phil know a lot about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> in his very polite British British way, let me be clear. Yes. He was but he, he certainly thinks that you're an expert, which you are. It's true. And I think the dad thing, action movies and dads, from my yes. point of view, is a real thing. Because when I was a kid, my dad did a couple things, I think, very well. One, he made me re read Shakespeare at far too young an age. He told me who John Le Carré was at far too young of an age. And he allowed me to start watching action movies at far too young of an age. So, you know, in the way that you are to Die Hard, I am to Lethal Weapon. That was like a regular movie in the rotation at the house. Old James Bond movies. Our connection was through movies. And, and you know, that led me in a path to study theater, to study acting, to, you know, go to film school eventually, to kind of really go out into the far from the sort of action genre. But it always comes back to action for me. I think action movies are a sort of essential part of my diet of loving art in general. And they, they are art. You know, action movies are really as important as any other kind of art. They're unique to themselves. and Action and movies are one of the most challenging um, types of movie to make. So we're coming at this whole thing from a place of love and passion and enthusiasm and uh, genuine respect and admiration for these for these movies. And, and we're dudes that work in Hollywood. And, and you mentioned the term Die Hard on a Blank and, and described it briefly. But but very quickly, for the, for the non-Hollywood guy, uh, what does Die Hard on a Blank mean? So the term Die Hard on a Blank has become cultural shorthand for any film that utilizes this very particular storytelling paradigm. Uh, broadly, bad guys take over a blank and it's up to one man or woman to stop them. That is the, the most simple, concise version of, of it. But Die Hard actually influenced the action genre in a multitude of different ways. And its DNA spread throughout the, the genre in ways that people may not necessarily expect. And that's another aspect that we're going to explore, as well as the direct replicators. Well, very clearly, Phil doesn't know that much about Die Hard or action movies in general. So I'll try to pick up the slack. You know, I'll try to really keep the thing moving. Um, but what I can tell you is that today's episode, this episode, the inaugural episode of Die Hard and Blank will be a deep dive minute by minute into the original action masterpiece, Die Hard. Should we should we start that right now, Phil? Should we get into it? Yes, let's uh, let's let's do it. Here we go. So the movie begins with John McClane, our hero, New York City police detective, arriving in L.A. at the airport at LAX. And he is hoping to reconcile with his estranged wife, Holly. And the first thing that happens is the guy in the seat next to him tells him to make fists with his toes, which I think is so amazing because him being barefoot becomes a pivotal part of the movie and they introduce it from the first 
section of the movie that it, it's like it's, taking, yeah. taking his shoes off whenever he gets where he's going. It's a great example of one of the things that this film does where moments that seem so natural and organic and just like texture yeah. are actually part of the Swiss watch of this this film's setup and payoffs that, right. it's, that, it's, that it's developing. And that one happens straight away. And there's also an interesting little moment with the flight attendant. Yeah, they make eye contact. And it's like, it holds for a second, and you're like, it's like whether it speaks like they're attracted to each other or something, but it again adds to this, like, he's kind of unmoored in his relationship at this stage. Like, he's going to reconcile with his wife. It's not entirely clear that either one of them actually want that. And so there's just this moment where he makes eye contact with the stewardess, and in that classic Bruce Willis way, goes like, <laughs> I don't know, it's great. It's a telling, it's a little moment, and actually there's a, there's a story behind it, because in the book, the, he actually has a whole romance with the flight attendant. He comes from St. Louis. Lewis to to LA and they have a whole kind of relationship. They end up kissing at the end when they say goodbye. And he actually ends up calling her from the skyscraper as the, the siege is going down. So there's also a deleted scene where it's what? slightly Yeah, it's pretty pretty wild. Um but also there's actually a, a slightly extended version where there's deleted scene where she overtly comes on to him and, and it was cut. I, I think it does speak to the. I think what they maybe were trying to do with that little moment was that he's is you know he's a good looking guy. He's got options, but he's he's got the big bear. He's focused on his daughter, his family. The big bear, right? You know. So we're like, oh, we kind of like this guy, but we do. I think it, the film does enough with just that subtle moment. So he arrives in LAX, and just straight away that shot of the plane and the hue of that that orange sky. I just love. Yeah. It tells you you're in, like, a new space, you know what I mean? And, like, especially because the movie's from his point of view. He's such an East Coast guy. That one thing I love about the movie is how it's kind of like, ugh, California, you know? Yeah, he just yeah. Doesn't... Straight away, it's sort of stranger in a strange land. Right. And it's subtle, but, you know, it's there. He's also probably had to wear warm clothes because he'd be coming from the, the yeah. East Coast, which explains why he's wearing the white vest. Right. Which and he's he coming would, from uh, a the, winter the East top. Coast to a... Yeah, you know, to the seasonal scene. West Coast California thing, which it's is not cold, which is its own sort of surreal landscape of Christmas in Los Angeles is kind of a unique environment. Yep. You know, um, it's it's warm, it's sunny, it's just it's different from well, and most also Christmas in movies in LA are like a whole subgenre of action movie. I mean, every Shane Black movie takes place at Christmas, right? Lethal Weapon. Uh, Last Boy Scout, Nice Guys, which comes out a few years later, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, they're all Christmas movies. It's Even his Marvel yeah. movie is a Christmas movie, yes. Iron Man 3. And he, the reason he said he, that when I've heard him talk about it is because it cre- it evokes a timelessness. Right. Um, and it is this strange, unusual setting and there's a sort of familiarity And to like it. a sad nostalgia. Mm. I think there's a little bit in all those movies. There's just mm. something a little like, oh, it's Christmas again. So yeah. so John arrives um, and then he's met at the airport by a young limo driver named Argyle who picks him up and he decides to ride in the, in the, in the front seat, um, which oh, is a telling, telling character moment. Right. Very skilled sort of buried exposition there through that conversation where they talk about the relationship and John's kind of guarded. Yeah. But it's really great. We like our guy. He's like, he's a cool guy. He's a nice kid. Yeah, he's a real mensch. Yeah. Like he agrees to sit in the, he knows that something's up. He agrees, I'll hang out until you talk to your wife. Like, see how things are. If not, I can get you a room in a hotel. Like, he's like a real people pleaser kind of guy. It's great. And so there's already, within a few minutes, there's like, these are two characters we like. Right. So they get to Nakatomi Plaza, um, and John is introduced into this sort of whirlwind world of corporate high executives. Money, money, money. The masters of the universe of their time, Japanese corporation, swashbuckling guys and and, and, and women. Coke-addled 80s executives. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And not his crowd, right? right? Like he's kind of – he doesn't fit. Right. In this world. And there's a lot of resentment, I think, that we can talk about when, we, when we're when we breaking down McLean's character. Well, yeah, you were talking about the class. You, It's an interesting reading that you have where you were sort of saying you felt there was like a class resentment towards yeah. him. Like white, he's blue collar. They're kind of white collar. Um, he doesn't like them. This is in the book, and we'll talk more about Ellis. Ellis is in the book. Right. It's like a rolled up dollar bill that he spots on the on the desk, and immediately think, okay, there's a lot of coke going on here. Um, well, he says to Ellis, "You miss some." Yeah, which yeah. is one of my favorite kind of yeah. like moments in the film. Also, the fact that Takagi says Holly's policeman. Yeah, I think is like very very key. Not that like McLean has any jurisdiction in L.A., but like 
it's not a great look that he's doing no. coke on her desk or whatever. And he's clearly is. creeping on Holly. Yeah. Right? Show him the watch. You know, yeah. yeah oh, the, the watch that then becomes again, like a pivotal exactly. tool so at the again, end of the movie. A, a moment that seems natural. Right. Um, and is about a sort of power status play that Alice is running on on McLean kind of thing. Um, uh, ends up paying off spectacularly later. So what also I think was really interesting about this scene is John and Holly, we see the pros and cons of their relationship, why, what brought them together and why they're having problems in a really realistic, natural way. And I was reading that apparently that scene was honed out of improvisations between huh. Willis and Bedelia. Um, and I think that's probably why it fe that feels like a real fight. And they both have a kind of a case. They both kind of have a fair point of view. But it's important, and, and McTiernan said that the moment when they really nailed McLean's character was when he kind of bumps his head against the thing and realized, like, he's kind of berating himself for right. going too far. And they said this, he was one of their, their thoughts around it and, and how they kind of calibrated the character was that he was a guy who didn't really like himself but was doing his best. Mm -hmm. um, and it also touches on some of Jeb Stewart's origins about how it was built out of an argument with his wife that he felt he he should have said sorry and then a tragedy didn't nearly happen. But we can talk about that wow. later. But I think it's great because it's interesting that Bonnie Bedelia is such a graceful presence that she seems somehow apart from these coke-addled, nasty, um, you know, the Ellis's of the world. Right. She can work alongside them, but she seems somehow apart from them. She has a kind of elegance and um, a blue... She's perhaps a, got a bit of blue-collar... Um, I think she's also her, a career aspirational woman that like... We don't dislike her at all. No. We, we actually think she's great. Yeah. You know? And I think there's something interesting, his sort of attitude towards her choice to prioritize her career over it's, their family, it's right? It's a little bit like caveman, isn't it? Right? It's like a little reactionary. She's doing better than him. Right. She's doing much better than him. And he's uncomfortable with it, you know? And, and you can kind of see like, okay... Um, the prob that there's clearly like a deep love and attraction, but at the same time there is the you can understand the issues that have driven them apart, and it's I think as I believe I'm right in saying that they're they're not reconciled when the terrorists come in, right? It's actually left at a f kind of a, a fracture. No, she a has the great fracture. line where, later in the movie that is such so telling when she convinces Hans to let bring a couch out and let everyone go to the bathroom, and he says. Um, he says, like, Takagi picks his people well, Miss, and she says, Gennaro, Ms. Gennaro. And, like, it's a great character moment because it tells us it's, like, two things. It's that great screenwriting rule, right? Like, you're moving the action forward, but also you're, it's a character moment. It tells you exactly how she feels as a character in that moment, and which I, is, but like, I think I'm she's, a single woman working in a business. She's also protecting John, though, isn't she, she by, is, by yes. doing that? So it works on a number of different right, um, that's a good point. Uh, contextual levels, potentially. So so their relationship is fractured at the point when the terrorists, led by um, our suave antagonist Hans Gruber, sees the building, uh, but McLean slips away in, in the chaos. And then... Gruber, and this is, again, I think it's such a genius scene. When Gruber identifies Joseph T Takagi, that scene where he's reading his biographies is, again, I think a brilliant piece of writing. And I believe that McTiernan kind of came up with that because it tells Takagi's life story. It also shows how Gruber has done his research. Right. So we're like, well, this guy's got no holes. He right. has got this down to a fine art. It, again, that scene, it has suspense because we're like, is he going to find Takagi? There's a lot of menace in watching Rickman make icons or look at all these middle-aged yep. Asian men. Like, it's a little tough to watch. Like, it's in hunting. a great way. And, like, it's yeah, hunting, and he's sort of looking you know? and they don't want to look at him. Um, very, very quick tangent. Takagi is played by an actor named James Shigeta, who's, mm -hmm. a, 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 I believe, a Japanese actor born in Hawaii. And he's in a movie from the 1950s called The Crimson Kimono. He plays an L.A. police detective who oh, falls in love with a white woman who his partner also falls in love with. And it's shot in L.A. in the 1950s in Little wow. Tokyo. And it's totally worth seeking out. I watched it during the pandemic. But there's a little bit of history in that he plays... Uh, like a kind of put upon LA police detective. It's probably the movie that sort of made him famous and like great film noir from the 1950s. Definitely. Wow, that's a great, that's a uh, that's a great catch. And he is terrific. Just brings 
gravitas and dignity and the way also I think it shows that he's a great leader because he's like, okay, enough. I'm stepping forward. You want me. I'm not going to hide. Right. Or we see all the qualities that have allowed him to ascend to this level of like a top. You he's know, powerful. The, the top yeah, yeah, executive. Sure. He's commanding. The, the, his troops clearly love him. Um, and we like him. So we're emotionally invested in this guy. He identifies Takagi. They take him upstairs to the boardroom because Hans is trying to extract the vault code. Uh, another brilliant scene. I don't know if you noticed. This took. I, I never caught this until the last few viewings. Viewing thirty-seven. <laughs> but um, <laughs> from viewing thirty-seven to thirty-nine, I really noticed. Did you notice this. that <laughs> Theo and Carl are making a bet yep. on whether he will? I told um, you, yep. it's not over. They yet. exchange yeah, like a twenty-dollar bill. It's, and and then Gruber looks at him. Looks at yeah. him. He's like, guys, can we be can fucking take it serious? I'm about to commit murder. <laughs> <laughs> but that stuff is what makes it so good. Like Theo's one of my favorite characters in yes. the movie. Ter- I spent Theo's 20 terrific. minutes on that guy's Wikipedia, being mm. like, where where else can I watch this guy? And it turns out he was just in Walker, Texas Ranger for 20 years. He was also in Top and... Gun. He had, had he, he played Sundown in Top Gun. Oh my god! Uh, I so didn't he has one really great scene that. on the runway with Cruz where he's telling me, "Hey, we could have had him, man." Oh, that's right. You know, um, right. he's not got a huge part, but it is. It is. Uh, I do not remember that at all. Wow, what a that's and chips. Cool. He was in Chips, the show. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's but so he's so great. Um, so it's kind of a shocking scene: the murder of Takagi. Um, it, it actually caused an issue with the ratings board. They had to. They, they were on the verge of an X rating. And the other thing that's interesting at this point, when the audiences were first watching the movie again, but Rickman was an unknown. So therefore, like his unpredictability. You know, audiences didn't know what to make of this guy. And he's so charming and erudite and, mm-hmm. you know, the, and then all of a sudden it's just like, no, this guy's lethal yeah. and has no moral code whatsoever. So he murders Takagi. Um, and this is, of course, witnessed by McLean, but he doesn't see Gruber's face, which was an important detail because it becomes relevant later. That's right. He doesn't see him. He doesn't know what he looks like. Yeah. So McLean, seeing this, is tries to alert the authorities with a fire alarm. Um, quite a clever, clever idea. But Hans nullifies it instantly and sends Tony after McLean. This no one is coming with... to save you. Great. <laughs> Very, very... The casting in this movie is unbelievable. They found the most German-looking yeah. men. They like probably like called the German film council and were like, "Send your five blondest and long-haired men." He is please. very German, <laughs> and I say that no, it might, that I have German heritage and my grandmother was German, so yeah. I'm on I'm on safe ground. But he is he's, <laughs> he's extraordinarily he's, German. He's very German. like you look German up in the dictionary, and that's and, what the well, guy. Interestingly, looks like. that act the the actor who hasn't hadn't done a ton was in The Living Daylights and, and I believe it danced <gasps> for the Berlin Ballet. So he's the second ballet dancer along with Alexander, Alexander Gudinov. Right. So they be, you believe that they're brothers. You know that, I forget his name, but one of the henchmen later plays Vigo, the Carpathian in, yes. in Ghostbusters 2. Terrified my childhood. Joseph von Wilhelm painting. or something. Yeah, yeah. That pain, oh, that... <laughs> That painting messed me up, man. Yeah. I have stories. I'll save it for off yeah. mic. But that that scared the crap out of me. Haunts my nightmares. Yeah. And he also got a great little part in, in the Mouth of Madness. That guy. Oh right, the carpenter. Yeah, movie. yeah, yeah. Before I think, sadly dying quite young. You know, it's like, and he was a boxer. Great before. face. Yeah. Okay, so Tony sent after McLean, but they 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 duke it out. It goes, you know, it goes badly for Tony. Breaks his neck falling down the stairs. Kills him, takes his weapon, takes his radio, and then uses the radio to contact the LAPD. But he sends him down, which is an interesting moment of kind of psychological warfare. Yeah. Right? It's a desecration of a corpse. Right. You know? And it's funny and twisted. But He's it's, a psycho. It's, a it, they're bit. trying yeah. to make – and this it, we get into the book a little bit. Um, McLean in the uh, – well, the, the character's not called McLean in the book, but – the, he uses intentional psychological warfare tactics to make the terrorists think that he's a fucking lunatic. Oh, interesting. Um, so to destabilize them, he, he writes, um, now we have a machine gun. Oh. So I feel like they replace that in the movie a little bit. I mean, I still think it's psychotic what he does, but they replace it with, and this is one of my favorite things about it, is his cunning as a detective and his... The fact that he's writing the information on his arm and he looks at the cigarettes and goes like, these are expensive foreign cigarettes. Like he's he's a detective. And like one of the things that I'm sad about is we never got the McLean year one prequel movie or series that they talked about for a while because I would have loved. It's one of my favorite things about Diary of the Vengeance is that you actually get to watch McLean 
be a detective for parts of these It's movies. one of the things I think that makes this movie so great is that you have a protagonist and an antagonist that are both incredibly fucking smart. Yeah. And seeing and it's very a chess similar game. guys, which I want to talk. Yeah, about. I want yeah, to talk yeah, about yeah, that yeah, too. And sure. Rickman has a great quote about that. So we're seeing this cat and mouse, two smart guys, kind of figuring each other out, and these the 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 floor is clearing for these opponents to do to do battle. So McLean uses the radio that he's stolen to contact the LAPD, but of course they're they're skeptical. Although he does convince them, uh, a classic. <laughs> no fucking shit, ladies. Does it sound like I'm ordering a pizza? <laughs> I love that it's line. It's truly, what a zinger. What a it's, zinger. Uh, yes, one of my favorites. I it's remember on my, my list dad of zingers. cackling with laughter every it's, time we watched them, the movie. It's wonderful. <laughs> and the dispatcher, like, come on. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like just, what are you doing? Is, I'm going to report you to the FCC. So um, Sergeant Al Powell, we're then introduced to. Uh, wonderful buying character. <laughs> buying his tr- Buying his stock of Twinkies. Twinkies, By sorry, the way, Twinkies. Loving the the guy who's like in the Seven Eleven, like great, yeah. great. Well, little... this is like McTiernan, the <laughs> dramatist. Like any excuse he can have to create like little moments between people. Like the, he's like they're from my wife, and he's like sure they are, but <laughs> I mean it's, it's just it's wonderful. Like, of course, this cop is buying Twinkies. Or it's just such a like quintessential, and it's awkward. And Al Powell is trying to just be the nice guy let's, the whole let's, time. Let's let's break this down. Is he buying them for his wife, or is he buying them for himself? Well, that's a good question. I think he's buying them for his wife. Yeah. But I think he's going to eat one or two on the way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's fair. Like, he's a good guy, but he's also, like, of all of us, he's not above being, I'm going to eat this one, right? It's it's an interesting moment as well because Reginald Val Johnson has such warmth as an actor that in two seconds we're like, I love this guy. So Sergeant Al Powell is sent to investigate, and um, by this point, McLean is battling more. Terrace, he ends up recovering a, a bag of C4 and Amber's detonators. But when he sees that Al Powell is not really picking up what he's putting down, he decides to take matters into his own hands and desecrates another corpse by yeah. throwing it out the this window. This is Marco. Onto the car. Marco, he throws this out the is window. Oh man, Marco. Yes. Yeah, I fuck. I fucking love Marco. I just gotta. I, I can't. No wait more tables. <laughs> Where are you Next going? Next time you have pal? a chance to kill someone, don't <laughs> hesitate. So I believe, interested. we think of them as all being German, but I believe Marco is Italian. Yeah. And I think he was a soap star or became a soap star. There's also a couple of French guys. He's so good, right. We've got Uli as well. Uh, and then, of course, our Huey Lewis lookalike who is on the on the front desk. Oh, he's um, great, that he's actor. Terrific. He's so good. What's his... I need is he on our to pull that up. We have this chart that Phil provided. Yes. let me get it. Um, Not James. Eddie. Eddie, yes. Shot, shot vault room, 30th floor. He's great. He's great. He's great. Uh, so I love as well the way that he's... I'm not sure that there would be a, US, a USC Notre Dame game on Christmas Eve. There's but... a lot of things that happen on Christmas Eve in this movie. Yeah. That, like, I would not go to a work party on Christmas Eve. I love my job. It's pretty but, like, late at night considering we're on West weird. Coast time yeah. as well. It's like... I don't know. Maybe Takagi is not a good boss because he's like, "Y'all got to come to my Christmas party on Christmas Eve." It is a little strange. Yeah, right? but we'll let that. We'll let, we'll that let go. it go. It's but a it great is movie. like, how cool is Eddie? The way that he's like, "Oh yeah, sure, take a look around." Like he's he's playing the role of like, "I'm so mm. casual. I'm just a no. security guard. I don't mind even saying that I'm making bets in front of a car." I actually think of first the first few times I watched this and I thought about it last night, I was like, "Is this guy German and just doing one of the most amazing Midwestern accents in the world?" And then you realize, no, he's just a a Midwestern guy, right? But like, it actually, I like how the team is a little more international than just a bunch of Germans. And it's also smart that they put the guy who's going to be the face of this as, a, as an American, every yeah. man looking guy, right? So yeah. if anyone does poke their head around the corner, it's like, eh, business as usual. Totally. So, you know, Powell does not, you know, is like, eh, you know, F this. He bounces, but then McLean uh, steps it up a notch by tossing Marco's body onto the car. And that changes the situation. And this is a key kind of turning point because then the LAPD respond in force. And we get our our man, uh, Deputy Chief Dwayne T. Robinson. Dwayne T. Robinson. An interesting moment about this that, I, again, I picked up like uh, probably on the viewing 32 was that Robinson is riding in the back of that car when he arrives. Yes, I've right. noticed that before. Why? Well, it's it's the difference between him and McLean, right? McLean is such Very a good. such a good yeah. guy, such a blue collar guy that he's like, I don't want sort of someone, you know, I don't want to sit in the back like Ulti. Let me right. sit up in the front with the guy. Yeah. Dwayne T. Robinson is like, no, I want someone to show for me around. Right. Uh, yeah. There's a weird thing with McLean and people who are aspirational because I don't think he buys the kind of like 
that attitude. Like, I think he sees through. There's a lot to the character, but one of the things that I love about him is he's very like, this is bullshit. Like, yeah. his attitude all the time he is He has an entrenched hatred of authority. Right. And that's, this is something that actually precedes in the Sinatra, the Sinatra character and the detective that we'll talk about, the, the key defining characteristics of that character. So Dwayne T. Robinson arrives. The SWAT team arrive. It's now it's now a big situation. They send in the car. Send, oh, send in the car. The car. It's, and it's one of those moments, isn't it, when you're watching it again and you're like, this movie's so great. And then it just keeps upping itself. Right. It's upping itself. Send in the car. Send in the S- car. Send in the car. And then suddenly the movie, like just when you think this movie can't get more awesome, an armored vehicle right. barrels down through the streets of Century City and 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 smashes smashes through the the railings of Nakatomi Plaza. That moment becomes very disturbing because Hans has hit it again. Yes. And McLean's like, like you made you've made point. your point. And he's like, oh, I'll take it under advisement. Hit it again. And like, it's a really fuck fucking cold-blooded moment. Yeah. He's a cold-blooded dude. And then the C4 moment is like very, it's very intense in a yeah. great way. But yeah. it's like, I don't know why, little nitpick, why everyone there isn't like, well, I'm now permanently deaf. <laughs> like everyone <laughs> there should be rolling on the ground. Like, I can't It's interesting because I'd actually thought when I, I was often, I used to think that moment was kind of reckless that McLean did that. But he knows that, no, the assailants that are attacking the SWAT team are on like the Whatever, the ground the, floor, the ground the third floor. floor or whatever, and right. all the hostages are on the the like thirtieth yeah. floor or the second floor, whatever it is. So it's actually kind of like a genius tactical right. move that he does that. But it is it comes at a price. But he's essentially he's quelling the raid. Like the raid has gone bad. Right. So he's like, let me just let's reboot. I'll take over because I, he's on the inside track. This is a little bit like what I think when I think of this movie as a symphony. Like it just keeps yes. building upon yes. itself. I think it's telling that they use Beethoven in this movie because I think McTiernan is like a very orchestral kind of director. And I think sequences like this show his ability to like play the orchestra of the movie that he's made. I mean, again, I've got some great quotes about this later, but he, he that you're a thousand percent right on that from, from the research that I've done about him. He overtly says he thinks in musical terms and he thinks in sort of symphonic right. terms, movie making as, symph- as yeah, symphonic. Yeah, you can totally feel it. I may have read this somewhere and I'm just forgetting that I read it somewhere, but there's something about his ability that makes me feel like he's a conductor. So then we get to a, a another classic scene where Ellis takes it upon himself to try and intervene. Hans, Bubby. I'm your white knight. <laughs> what am I, a method actor? Hans, put the gun away. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So a great, great scene of coke-fueled hubris. Right. Right? Like he's like, look, I, I'm a negotiator, right? This is what I do. I negotiate interna- complex international deals. So from his point of view, he's like, okay, well, look, let me try and like find some common ground here. We can kind of sort this out. One of the things that I think is brilliant about this scene, again, I've probably picked up on viewing 38, is the line. I think, think it was 34. About... Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank I, you. I have my list of your viewings here, and it says 34, uh, Ellis note. Appreciate that. Yeah. He says, if you think about the absurdity of this line, look, just tell them where the detonators are so no one else gets hurt. I, you know, I love, this is what I think is great about this movie is there's there's humor around the edges. Yes. But like that moment is deadly serious for McLean. And I love how there's a line after where Powell says like he did everything he could for that guy. But at a certain point, it's like, John McClane doesn't have that much power, right? He's in, like, such an impossible situation, and all he can do is be like, this guy's going to hurt you. Like, these guys are not joking around. And we know because Hans does not blink when it comes to shooting Takagi, which is such a powerful part of the movie that, like, he's dead. They're going to kill him, you know? And it's satisfying because Ellis sucks, but it's also sad and a pitiful moment and like you feel bad for this guy because he's like way in over his head yeah he just said, doesn't it's like a cold well, and McLean hubris. literally says you know 
Hans, this guy does not know what kind of man you are, but right. I like this is but not Ellis's world. Right. Ellis just because Hans Gruber is in a suit right. and and seems to be acting in a gentlemanly fashion when he's not murdering people doesn't mean that him and Ellis are like uh, simpatico. Right. It, I can't he, wait to talk about Gruber more. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna get oh, we're oh, gonna man. get deep yeah. on 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 oh, Hans. The best wonderful scene of of tension, but yeah, it's like what can McLean do? He's basically saying, so you want me to return the detonators to this guy so that. He's, what's he going to do with them? You right. think he's just going to like blow up some fireworks? This is what Ellis is not understanding. Right. He's just thinking, he wants this, let me get it. But he's not thinking, why does he want the detonators? Right, right. I've I've taken away something that can weaken. This is all This is all guerrilla tactics. Right. You're taking away your enemy's weapons to weaken them and confuse them and create more problems for them and disrupt their plan. This is all what McLean is, is And all McLean really can do is buy time. Yes. Like, that's that's the thing that's sort of existentially complicated. He's like, yes. he can't defeat the terrorists, really. Really, he's, like, thinking on his feet, improv- improvising that. And that's one of the best things about this movie is that, like, McLean is really, like, DIY the whole time, which I think is what makes him partially sympathetic is, like, it's a lone man in an impossible situation. But I think as well with, with like, guerrilla warfare, which he's sort of doing an extension of, the, the mentality behind it from the research I've done around it is that you don't sort of take on the enemy head on, especially if you're if you're outnumbered, right. you you have short skirmishes that weaken them one by one and wear them down. Right. Um, so I think he. It's like the Revolutionary War, which might be a controversial topic for an Englishman and an American to test it. Thank God. <laughs> but no, it's that same thing that you learn about, right? Like, uh, well, how do you defeat small um, small yeah. contingent? You know, how do you defeat superior enemy? Right. You have to use kind of a different sort of uh, style. A of superior tactics. enemy that also follows traditional tactics, which is interesting because Gruber does not. He's a much more complicated, like sort of co- commander than. Mm. He's smart, and he's but he's got everything figured out. But he's also uh, willing to sacrifice his own man, as we right. find out later. But I don't want to get ahead, ahead yeah. of ourselves. Well, yeah, so, you're right. So okay, so Alice uh, has tried to intervene, but ends up being killed by by hands. It ends up going badly. Then while then we get to another classic scene. Again, the movie continues to top itself because while checking the explosives on the roof and looking around, and hands is trying to find the detonators. Hands encounters McLean. One of the all-time classic oh God. scenes. So let's break this one down. So here's my question to you. Okay, so real quick. Hans knows it's McLean, or he assumes he figures it out, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The implication the first time I watched this movie is that McLean has no idea that it's Hans. But I think he knows that this guy is not Bill Clay from, you know, Room 32 or whatever it happens to be. I think it's like in rewatch, and maybe I'm wrong about this, that's why he gives him the gun with no bullets in. I and the gun is a test. He hands I, him the I, gun. I agree. And the first time I watched, yeah, again, going through my viewings, the first time you watch it, you think you might assume that, yeah, he does. McLean has been successfully right. tricked. But I think McLean, it is, it's like he suspects he could be a terrorist, but he's not sure. So it's like, I better not, I better not kill him. So, yeah, he needs to run, run a test on him. And there's a bunch of... It's kind of like, it reminded me of the scene, you know, I just watched The Princess Bride and, you know, the Battle of Wits scene. It's been a long time, but yeah, 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 of You know, there's a, it is a battle of wits. Right. Um, obviously, in Princess Bride, it's done for more, it, it's a more comedic, playful scene. But in this, it's, it's two smart guys figuring each other out and who is going to kind of break break first. And yeah, I think he does, there is a possibility from McLean's point of view, he's wearing a suit. Right. He's speaking with an American accent. There's a very possibility that it could be could be an escape hostage, but so he's, he has to sort of suss him out. There's also a very interesting couple of moments. I don't necessarily read on screen now, but for various reasons they were cut out. There's two things that, there's a, in addition to the gun that McLean does. One, he gives him German cigarettes, which are apparently incredibly strong. And if you didn't, so he, if the guy smoked them and coughed and was like, holy shit, these are a little bit tasty. Right. He, yeah. he he would have been like, okay, you're American. Gruber smokes them without the second thought. It's a little bit that's, like that's the first. three classes in Inglorious Bastards. That's yes. how they know that Fassbinder is not German, but is in fact English. But it's a classic, classic scene. Classic, it is, classic it's scene exactly classic the same principle in a, right. weird, in a weirdly um, similar way because of the, ger- the German element and, and the deception element. But if you think about it, why would he offer him a cigarette? Like they're not just chilling out. Right. Like, okay, sure. It's a little bit of a test. It's a test. And the other thing. German cigarettes. This was was cut out. 
when the guys arrive, right, just going back a second, when the terrorists arrive, apparently there was a scene that was cut. They all synchronized their watches and they're not at that time, not a common watch to for um, Americans right. to have. So there's actually a moment that this was cut because it was hot at the, because of the ambulance thing. You know how when they arrive in the truck, they they it wasn't there was not an ambulance in there it's right. probably the only flaw in the entire movie but they they get away with it because they cut it quickly so that you don't really see what's in the truck and your the mind the human mind oh. doesn't go i've never been like well that ambulance is on yeah you don't think about yeah. it because they did they it was skillfully edited in a way where you, oh, I guess you could say that maybe there was an ambulance in right. there. But when that was a, a late edition because they were shooting this on the fly and, and things were being changed on the fly. But apparently you do see that he checks out Gruber's watch still. The moment, that makes sense. Again, McLean, the detective. He, the detective. Right. Is very good at like reading people and understanding them and knowing And what was are. the movie mm. that this pre- was preceded was called The Detective. And which it was I've never seen. Which we'll get into, but it's exclusively about the nuances and the, the minutiae of detective work. And it's a great point that you made that this is, not only is he sort of a kind of combatant, but he's also a detective. And the, that's what makes him a formidable foe. He, it gets glossed over that McLean is not just a superhero. In fact, one of the things I think is really interesting about this movie is that there's, and this sounds a little heady, but like there's a little bit of a meta quality to this movie in the sense that they reference Rambo. They He says at one point they have enough explosives to orbit Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, yes, and yeah. I think it's a very wise choice by the screenwriters to be like, McLean is a guy that watches Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, not Arnold Schwarzenegger himself. Uh, one of the screenwriters, Stephen D'Souza, wrote Commando. Correct. Right prior to this, and like, there's a huge difference between Schwarzenegger and Commando and McLean and Die Hard. And I think that one of the things that's really great, it's a little cliche to say he's an everyman, but they do a very good job of being like, yeah, this is just a guy that you'd sit next to on a plane and have a weird conversation with about making fists with your toes. He feels like an everyman. I think also the shoe thing, the feet, you know, the fact that he's making fists with his toes is what. Later, coming on after this, when he sort of gets surprised by Carl, and I forget who the other German assassin or terrorist is, they shoot the the great the great moment in the movie. Can I can I do this? Please, I, I'm a little jealous, but I'd like it. It's your <laughs> podcast, so I think you should do it. Shoot the glass. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I love that moment. I love one of my, my favorite moment besides shoot the glass is when McLean is in the corner huddled over and he just goes, Jesus Christ! Because yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. laying this glass out. It's very real. It's yeah. visceral, and it's like, yeah, holy. And the shit. movie does an amazing job of constantly reminding you he's barefoot. One of the great lines in the movie is seven million terrorists in the world, and I got to kill the one with feet smaller than my sister. So, and this take this moment that that follows the the battle of wits and and then Carl and the other terrorists arrive before McLean can deal with with Gruber effectively and take him out leads to really you know what we we call in you know kind of stream screenwriting structure your your lowest point right for right. For, for McLean where his his feet have been destroyed he's been kind of really debilitated now right. in terms of his ability to be an effective combatant right and this scene where he calls Powell on the radio and he talks about his wife and they both talk about their vulnerabilities it feels like first of all it's an incredible piece of acting from Bruce Willis which I don't think is it, I don't think he sometimes gets enough respect yeah, he's on the verge of tears an actor you know in general I think people forget because he became such a, an iconic movie star you also had to be you don't get to become an iconic movie star unless you you know have some acting prowess and Bruce Willis in that scene it, he thinks he's gonna die right at that, in my opinion, that's how he's playing the scene. Right. He's like, I'm he's probably going to die. Wife again. And and I, the last thing I did was fuck up with my wife. And it's it's really moving. Yeah, it is. Well, you know, not to discuss, uh, to get too tangential here. One of the things I think is really interesting about action movies from the 80s is f- after playing Martin Riggs in Lethal Weapon, Franco Zeffirelli cast Mel Gibson to play Hamlet. Mm. And he cast him to play Hamlet based on the scene in Lethal Weapon when Mel Gibson almost blows his own brains out in the and first 10 minutes. And that scene is so raw. It is so raw and it's so amazing. And apparently Franco Zeffirelli saw it and was like, that guy is Hamlet. Well, that's Hamlet's dilemma, Yeah, right? exactly. And yeah. I just think it's so interesting that like, you know, there was this moment <laughs> in the 80s where it's like, maybe action heroes can do Shakespeare and vice versa. And then of course McTiernan spoofs that in Last right, Action right, Hero. right, right. Like in a really funny way, but there's there the point is like 
there one of the things that's great about these movies is that great actors played these parts. You know, we talk a lot about how Marvel movies have great actors and they do, but like great actors did really good action movies in the 80s, you know, that are that that have so much pathos because they're such good uh, and actors. And in the 90s I think a lot of um actors became great actors that wouldn't ordinarily have done action became attracted to it which is something that we're going to explore as the as the podcast goes on but certainly this is a terrific scene uh very very moving uh and emotional and then i i believe it's also where al powell kind of talks about his tragedy which is you know which is a difficult scene and then our boys, Agents Johnson and Johnson. No relation. Uh, no relation. Um, Robert Davi and Robert Grand Davi. L. Bush. Yes, um, that's right. He's one of the cops in Lethal yeah. Weapon 1 and 2. Correct. But weirdly, Isn't from my research, predator? he plays two different characters in Lethal Weapon and Lethal Weapon 2. And they're both cops, but they have different names. So oh, that's, that's just really a bit interesting. A, that's a weird, that's a, just a weird Is he in the scene where Griggs gets out of the vest? I th- yeah, I think he's one of the cops in the police station. Right. And um, he, pl- But he has a quick scene in the first one with Danny Gold. Anyway, this isn't about Lethal Weapon. Right. But yes, right. yeah, that's yeah, a separate. Yeah. Robert Davi, though, great late '80s. Uh, we'll probably talk about him a couple more. T- well, I Big know time. we're going to talk. We're going to talk about, about him. I want to particularly talk about him in *License to Kill*, which right. is a movie I want. I want to cover, which I think *Die Hard* did have. They have an influence. That's on, a but, yeah, for sure. But. So these guys turn up and they, in their mind, take control of the situation. I love how he says to Dwayne Dwayne Robinson, like, "Oh yeah, when we commandeer your men, we'll we'll try to let you know." Right. Try. I actually noticed that for the first Try. time last night, and I was like, what a dick. Because it's interesting how, he like— He outdicks Dwayne Robinson. Right. Like, well, and the fact that Dwayne Robinson becomes almost immediately just like, what's the word? He's He's the shittiest guy, but then when the FBI shows up—and this really factors into what I think is really interesting about this movie. When he shows up, he kind of becomes benign. Right, like you actually kind of sympathize. With yeah, him yeah a he's bit. a little. Bit, I think we're gonna have to get some new FBI guys. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of the great movies of this. Yeah, but like he's just he's so he kind of like loses any power. And yeah. early on, you hate him. They and cut by his this legs point off movie, straight like, away, mm, you yeah. know. But also, he's been inept, right? And he's these guys inept. are kind of turning up. You know, it's federal level now, and it's yeah. like, okay, like you know, it's mm-hmm. it's big boys' time. So they turn up, and they also, you know, have the same kind of hubris, albeit in a in a slightly different way. They're very arrogant, and they're moving the anti-terrorism playbook is to shut off the power. But which course, opens up the vault. Which plays into Hans's plan. And he's, this has been his plan the whole time. What a time. wonderful moment. Yeah. And again, this is the moment that we, we'll talk about when we talk about Martina's approach, but the joy of that moment. And because they're thieves and not um, just terrorists, there's kind of a moment where you're like, well done, guys. Did you see that <laughs> quote from Stephen E. D'Souza where he said that he almost wrote the movie from Hans's POV? Yes, Because yes. he's the character who sort of drives the story forward. And I think what's really interesting about this movie is it's one of, it's certainly not the first, but it's definitely one of those movies where you're like, man, the villains are as cool as the hero. And that tension that, it, like, the fact that you're kind of like, it's pretty awesome when they get the vault open and you're kind of into it, even though you're ultimately like, these guys are going to get their comeuppance. Okay, so the FBI guys' tactics end up open, opening the vault, which is this great, wonderful, joyous moment with the Beethoven. And they agree to Han's demands for helicopters, which is all part of his, his ruse, but they, their intention is to send these gunships instead. Uh, McLean then realizes that Hans plans to blow up Wait, the sorry, roof. you just blew past something I think is oh, very please. important, which is we have to do the line, which is just like fucking Saigon, oh, a yeah, yeah, yeah. slick. <laughs> and he says, I was in junior high, dickhead. <laughs> Interesting. Their relationship, like, are they bros or no? No, I think Doesn't Special Agent like Johnson, it. Robert Davi is Special Agent Johnson, right? Or is, it doesn't it matter. Doesn't matter. What, at that moment never made sense because every FBI agent is a special agent. This movie so. is really good about like power dynamics, obviously. And like it's interesting how like Dwayne T. Robinson is Powell's boss, sort of, or like higher up, and like he's a dickhead. And Davi is a dickhead. And I think I'm sorry, who's the actor who Grandel Bush. Grandel Bush yeah. is like this fucking guy too. Like, I don't think anyone likes their boss in this movie, except Holly and it's inter- it's interesting, yeah, because there are a lot of like hierarchical things going on ar- ar- about bosses, about the, the your superiors, and, and the only person without a boss in this movie is John McClane. Right. Yeah. 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 And therefore, he's free, uh, he's f- and unencumbered with those right. restrictions right. to to act uh, outside the parameters of bureaucracy to function effectively, and right. that uh, even if it's like uh, considered unconventional or inappropriate. 
So um, McLean realizes as the gunships are inbound that Hans now plans to blow up the roof and kill the hostages. But the vengeful henchman Carl intercepts him before he can warn the LAPD of this imminent danger. What a fight that is. So good. I have a I whole theory. It. I want to fuck it. I'm going to fucking cook it. <laughs> I have a it's whole great. theory about the that relationship in the movie that I'll spin at you later. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. man, the spin casting of Alexander Goodenough. Well, one of my favorite shots in the movie comes a little bit earlier when he's having the firefight on the roof right before Al shows off. And it cuts to this shot of Carl walking across oh, the, yeah. the, the helicopter. silently. Stalking. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and you have this moment. And then the next thing, he gets the gun and he sort of, he shoots and McLean like spirals out of control and falls over. And it's a really great moment to establish that like Carl is a slow, meticulous, revenge is best served cold kind of guy played by a ballet Mm. dancer. And so he's graceful and elegant and like he's still and he has a stillness and McLean is all freneticism, all movement, all can't stop, won't stop moving. And it establishes again this like the idea of the movie, which is like McLean just has to move to survive. And Carl has this ability to just kind of like, I can do whatever I want. And it's this sort of, he, let me put it a different way. He has this kind of ability to stalk people and move slowly and he has all the power. And I think it's mirrored in a lot of movies, action movies in the 80s, where the second in command is almost as important to the tension as the main, I'm thinking of Lethal Weapon 2. Well, Shane Black does this almost yeah. every time. That yeah. The henchman, the number two guy in the, in the criminal hierarchy or the, the antagonist is is actually the main adversary. Right. Gary Busey, Gary Busey. Long oh, yeah. Kiss Goodnight, Craig Busey. Right. and uh, Milo in uh, Last Boy Scout. It's something he goes back to the well on and it, and he's amazing at it. And it's just so great how f- you feel this, ga- this gap between them physically that sort of reinforces how different they are as, as people. Like, Carl is a stone-cold psycho, but McLean is just trying to survive. And, like, it does a good job of setting them up in opposition It's to such a another. great point. I'd never really thought about that. I, I, that probably would have come on viewing 47. Yeah, you were going to get there next I'd get time. there eventually, but I needed a little <laughs> bit of help from you. And I, no, you're right, because they have these totally different physical styles and energies and approaches. And that's almost Carl takes quite a lot of punishment before he responds in right. that fight. You know, um, God, and when he finally chokes him with that chain and sends him flying, it's like, oh, this is brutal. It's so brutal. Yeah, and that's great. it. It's right, like, because Carl is has this is more methodical right as you say is more patient and and mclean it's just a desperation there's a desperation he can't stop moving to yeah he's just it's pure survival mode he can sort of think on the fly and again you cast someone who can move elegantly like alexander goodenough like even when he when he flails and knocks like hits the table when he's frustrated he hasn't got him yet he like stops he pauses he looks over and then he loses his mind like it's all very like mctiernan being like you're a ballerina. Be one. You know, like really just move like a, like a panther or like a yes, cat. Like there's yes. something really interesting about that side of it. I just think it's like very, very fascinating to watch. And they don't have the like deep interpersonal kind of relationship. There isn't this like long established history, but the movie just goes to great lengths in a great way to be like, these are very different figures. You know, the long swath of Gudenov's blonde hair versus McLean's kind of like crop cut style. You know, Carl's boy dressed in all black. Like, it's just very smart. It's it's very it's very thoughtful in setting up. And again, as a writer or as a director, it's like these are the kind of choices that really make this movie stand apart. Like, we know who these guys are and we cast the right actors to do it. The motivations are slightly different as well in the fight, aren't they? Because for Carl, it, it's it's revenge. And for for McLean, it's survival. You know, right. it's like it's not... It's I don't always really survival. It's just, it's just survive the next moment and keep moving, like, you know, as you said. And also, how does... How does Carl die? He dies flailing. He dies moving in a way he never moves in the entire movie. He like can't control he's his own body. Of his, uh, yeah, grace he's robbed and, of his grace and, and agency um, and, yeah, yeah, and ability yeah. to move the way that but, he knows how to or move. Or is he dead? Oh, that's right. How did I forget? Interesting. Right. When they would always when on British television, which had some minor cuts for you know the more extreme, some of the violence that was that was uh, cut for for British television. So in my first twenty viewings, I wouldn't see these moments. But the 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 shooting of the legs in that shoot it's the really glass gross. is really that bit was always cut because that's pretty horrific. Yeah, and it's um, slow. It like, takes its time. Graphic yeah. slow motion and and blood splattering through the legs, and they would always cut the bit where Carl, the close up of Carl struggling 
dangling in the chains. Right. So it was weird. It was actually it actually affected your viewing of the movie because it was kind of like his death was almost an afterthought. And by having that shot, you were like, oh, he is definitely dead. How does he get um, down? He, we do know he has ex- incredible physical strength. Right. So I don't know that it's beyond the realm of possibility that he could uh, figure it out. But, you know. I like that they borrow this trope from horror movies. That the yeah, villain has Myers-esque. one last sort of yeah, like yeah. one last hurrah. And, of course, then it completes. It completes um, Al's, Al's, Al's journey. Th- but before we get to that, we also have Dick Thornburg's news report that makes, because he's been up to quote McLean, a fly in the ointment throughout this whole time, yeah. buzzing around. in the causing Monkey in the wrench. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he's causing mayhem with his, with his hubris and opportunism. And he his his really horrible news report where he goes to the McLean household makes Hans realize that Holly and John are married. And that prompts Hans to take her as a personal hostage while the others are sent to the roof. So um, so after McLean has managed to take Carl out and he drives the hostages f- from the roof, we then get to possibly the greatest moment of this symphony. As all of these elements are converging, the FBI gunships are have they think McLean is a terrorist. McLean is trying to get the hostages off the roof. He knows it's loaded with a massive amount of explosives. He's now trapped in this impossible situation. And he, because he's such an ingenious and inventive character, he quickly finds a solution to what seems like he's been backed into an impossible corner and takes the fire hose and wraps it, around around him, wraps it around his waist. And he's talking to himself as he's doing I this, which you have die. to do a Please lot. Please don't let me die. And you're just like, how the fuck did you get into this shit? so good. (laughs) Come out to the coast. We'll have a few laughs. And what a a moment of just sort of like, yeah, that it makes complete sense. It's totally practical. It's totally logical, albeit in this extreme scenario. And uh, we were just talking about how the... The symphony reaches this point of crescendo. Then the music is pulled. McLean jumps with the fire fire hose attached to his waist. The, the roof explodes and he is able to survive, whereas the FBI gunships do not. And then, of course, it, you know, they have this one of the most iconic shots of him shooting the shooting the glass. Shooting the glass. Um, with the blood but in a different from way, his feet. The blood all from over his it. feet, which was very in- intentional. You know, Ugh, he, he so goes, gross. goes from bad to. But it goes from like good. It's like I think there's a technique for this, or there's a term for it, where it's like good news, bad news. The good news is he's managed to survive, but the bad news is the fire hose is now going to pull him to his death. So I've seen this movie twenty times, thirty times, and I mostly can sit through it, sort of, sort just it like out. watching like, you gotta watch it. Yeah, I'm gonna, I gotta, I gotta catch up with you. I'll start tonight. <laughs> but every time I watch it, I have a physical reaction to him moving towards the. Like I start to move my body in a way where I'm like, oh, get the get the thing it's off. So you, you really feel it. Yeah. You really feel it. You know, and like that doesn't happen in a movie that you've seen 20, 30 times. But still, every time I'm like, <sighs> the suspense because that's really scary. Palpable, Falling to your yeah. death. Yeah. It's really scary. It's more scary than being shot or all of these other things. Right. There's something more frightening about that. Meanwhile, Theo is retrieving a hidden ambulance that was the, the intended to be the the, our, the bad guy's escape vehicle. But Argyle gets his hero moment and, and, and sparks him out. And then now we have our final showdown where McLean finds Hans and Holly and appears to surrender. But because he's only got two, he's got two bullets left. He's got. There's Who's three guys alive? to take out. It's so we've got Eddie is still alive. Let me just Hans check our chart. Still alive. I have... we'll just check our terrorist chart. Eddie, yes, Eddie Chi-chi. is alive. Hans, Alexander's dead. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I believe it's a French guy, because I was always, I always thought that you know when Hans is throwing the money around, the bearer bonds. Christoph, around, it's Christoph. I thought he was saying Holly, but I, when I had the subtitles on, he's actually saying Ale. I've never caught that. Before. I never caught it. Some American that speaks no other languages. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> I'm not exactly multilingual myself, but we now have our high noon moment, right? Yes. Class and McTiernan was talking about how this is like such. He was like, "Oh, this is such a tired trope." You know, he yeah. felt embarrassed to do it. The bad guy puts the gun on the, you know, to be crude about the love, in, the love interest character. Obviously, you know, Holly Janow is much more than that, but just in, in yeah, in, no, in for his, sure, in it's, his terms, you it's know, the it, iconic structural, t- yeah, image. We're now in that in that showdown. Hans has a gun to Holly's head, but there's. There's two terrorists to take out, and John only has two bullets. So how is he gonna, you know, solve it? But he actually obviously pistol whips Christoph first, I think, yeah. to 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 sort of clear clear the table, and then we get into his fine rhapsody of of violent genius, 
which is the, the the gun taped to his back. Right. And he seems to surrender, and he tricks them into thinking he's surrendered. Well, it's the then, great laugh moment where all they're they're all laughing together, and it distracts cra- them. Yeah, it's kind of kind of crazy. He looks. McLean looks fucking insane in that moment. Yeah, talk about like, he's horror. all teeth, you know? he's covered in blood. Yeah. Like his, he's, he doesn't even have a tank top on anymore, and he's just laughing. And you're like, this guy, he's making them think Hi, he honey. snapped. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hans, <laughs> and he like limps to the finish line. It's, well, it's I really suppose great. it's also speaks that he's trying to make them think that he's not like Compass Mentis to the right. level that he actually is. Till still, you, I want them to think that I'm more weak than I actually am to trick them into what I'm going to do to them. Right. So it makes sense. He's oh, he's like selling the hobble and the uh, really messed up but actually when he blows him away because of course what happens is he he tricks them by pulling a a hidden gun Holly knowing McLean the way she does senses like he's not going to surrender yeah no there's a great shot of her face she she clocks like something's going going down and I need to be ready when it does because she knows her husband and she knows this is not a man that's going to walk into this situation and and hand over a gun he's going to he's got some move up his sleeve and I need to be ready when it goes down and sure enough she is so when he pulls the gun off his back and shoots them both away suddenly McLean's demeanor is completely different right he's no longer right. like Hans he's like yeah got you right happy trails Hans bang bang and then maybe the great screen pl- they fall out the window Hans can- holds onto her wrist and you realize he's holding on by the gold watch that Ellis has given her in the what movie. a touch what a touch and McLean manages to get the watch off and he falls to his death. But also, like, from a screenwriting perspective, it sort of symbolizes, like, any conflict between them, like, any other person that kind of comes between them is now out the picture, and they're sort of reunited. And it's the movie a does a great piece job. piece of symbolism, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's, like, the last connection to pre- the Ellis's of this. Because Ellis yeah. seems to take, it's like materialism, isn't it? Right. It's like, flex the watch, flex the Rolex. Like, this is not the the, the woman right. I married that's, like, obsessed with material And that values. 80s Wall Street yeah. greed thing that this movie, like, greed. has yeah. an interesting relationship to. I also think... And those shackles are shed in that right. moment. Yeah. I think this, the, that's why it's such a good symbol, because it can be interpreted as, like, oh, it's the excess of that. but Or you could view it as, like, the sort of thing in their relationship that, that needs to be severed so that they... They can they can connect again. I think another thing that's interesting is that the movie ends with them leaving the building. And the building like represents her job. It's the first place he goes in LA. He doesn't go see his kids first. The first thing she says is like, come to my work party. And you gotta think in his head, he's like, I just wanna see my kids. You know what I mean? Like, and so the fact that they leave the building as a reunited couple, as we're led to believe, feels like it's a little bit of an escape from the problems. Or not an escape, but they, they're going to patch up the problems. Or, or a reprioritization, perhaps. That's a great way to think you about know, it. It's like, not like she's quitting her job, no, right? And no, and nor should she. You also, know, is there a job anymore? Is the company yeah, what still ha- exist? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> New podcast, what happens to Nakatomi? Right. The Nakatomi Corporation Taka- the next yeah, day. Yeah, Takagi's sort of like... like where did they go? I mean, yeah, exactly. What happens to all those bear bonds? What about the project in Indonesia? Like, Oof. what's going on with that? Like, yeah, I yeah, need answers. <laughs> a 12-part investigative series. <laughs> Yeah. To the aftermath of, of, uh, We're going to talk about the building of the bridge, engineering. Like, there's something here. Yeah. yeah. So, but then we think that's the ending. But there is one final fly in the final, ointment. Final A pain fly in, in the, the ass. Which is our our friend uh, Carl returns, resurrected, half dead. Tries to kill them, but it's it's Al, Al Powell, Powell pulls his gun and and saves the day. Yeah, saves the day. We do have one last, another little moment of violence. Thankfully, there is the violence. Thank continues goodness, the violence doesn't end because Holly punches Dick Thornburg as Argyle arrives in the limo to whisk them away, and they still have the bear in the back as well. So oh, we, the bears in the, the back. nuclear so we family is we, is going to be reunited, and you know, paper falls from the sky like Christmas snow. Harmony, uh, yeah, harmony is achieved. I mean. It's a pretty good movie, I it's guess. Okay. It's all right. What and the song? song Let It Snow plays. Is that, oh, that's right. That's Which, right. Oh, I forgot it was Let It Snow. Yeah. Um, so, so, all right. so that's Die Hard. So that's the movie. It took that's... us as long to get through it as the movie runs. So congratulations <laughs> on your free feature-length commentary. But it's that good that it's it requires that, that level I agree. Of... <laughs> so, Phil, we've talked our way through the movie. What's next? What next time well. on Die Hard on a Blank? Next time in our next uh, on our next episode, we're going to talk about what makes a good action movie. Uh, we're going to talk about the anatomy of an action movie, and we're going to talk about Die Hard's DNA, um, the the origins of Die Hard and the influences upon it. 
I can't wait. You know that you've done a ton of research on this. There's a lot we're going to learn about. It's going to be very exciting. So I want everyone to show up next time with your education hats on. It's going to be time to learn. I'm, but I'm a fun team. I like you're to think fun. I'm a fun yeah, team. You're fun. You're I like roll the, up the, the sleeves guy of my throwing the baseball jacket. in the yeah. air. Yeah, you know, yeah. pacing around the room. Yeah, being like. I'm like I'm like so the teacher Cara. that's like call me Phil, you know. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> don't call hey me guys, Mr. Gold. You don't have to call me Mr. Gold. Call me Phil. We'll be back next time. Thanks, everybody. Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast hosted and written by Philip Gawthorne. Liam Billingham co-hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Special thanks to Suki Chu and the whole team at Sugar 23. We'll be back next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.